morning. So the reading is from John 20, verse 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were, for in the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on him, on them, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, "Mm -mm. unless I see in his hands the, the marks of the nails and place my finger into his side, the mark I'm sorry. (laughs) I will never believe. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have his name. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. There's a little parable called Shooting at the Sun. And it's a story of a king who commanded a group of archers to shoot at the sun. Like bow and arrow. The strongest bowmen, using their finest equipment, tried all day, but their arrows fell short. And the sun continued unaffected on its course. All night, the archers polished and refeathered their arrows. And the next day, they tried again with renewed zeal. 
but still their efforts were in vain. The king became angry and uttered dark threats. On the third day, the youngest archer with the smallest bow came at noon to where the king sat before a pond in his garden. And there was the sun, a golden ball reflected in the still water. And with a single shot, ding, the shot, the lad pierced the heart of the sun and it splintered into a thousand glittering pieces. We're continuing on this morning in a little three-week series called Resurrection for the Curious. Um, looking at three different resurrection stories of, in some sense, trying to shoot the sun with an arrow, kind of like those archers were, and trying to discover the power of the resurrection for our lives, to really see if it's true, to really see how we can believe in something so magnificent as this. And we're looking at a couple of different questions. So if you remember last week, if you were with us, we were joining two lads on the, um, the road to Emmaus as they walked away on Easter back to their home and the risen Jesus met them there. And it said, after he opened the scriptures to them, it said, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road, as he opened the scriptures to us. So last week, we basically talked about the profound experience of the living God that you can have with the risen Jesus and how ultimately it's a heart that burns that is evidence for the resurrection. Next week, we're going to get into kind of what, where would a, a risen, resurrected Jesus even fit into our modern life, our busy, frenetic, modern world? Where would a, a risen Jesus even fit in to our life? But today, we're going to look at the evidence. What is the tangible evidence for a resurrected Jesus? So remember last week, I, I showed a picture on the screen of the brain, the right brain and the left brain. And some of us are more experiential, more artistic. And that was kind of last week's brain focus. This week is kind of for the more logical, linear, practical thinkers. What's the evidence? What can I see to help me believe that this actually could have happened? And I can actually bank my life on a resurrected Jesus. And so just to kind of segue into that, I was reflecting this week um, that there's a lot of reasons to not believe Christianity. And in our world, there's a lot of people that don't believe in Christianity. And, and there's actually a whole lot of really bad reasons to disbelieve Christianity. Like things that are just easily, when I say easily, I don't mean to make it flippant, because I know some of you maybe have struggled with some of these, these doubts, but, but there's things you can explain with some rationality as to, to answer some of the questions why some people don't believe. And so let me give you just a couple, and I really don't mean to make light of these, but I'm just saying you can explain these with a little bit of time or a little bit of research. Some of the bad reasons to not believe Christianity are, number one, the reliability of the Bible or of the Holy Scriptures. Some people have made it their aim to attack the credibility of the Bible itself. And they say, well, this is all just either made up, 
or it's been changed over time, or it's not the same text as, as when Jesus was around. So it's not literal. You can't take it as, as reliable. And it's just not true. Uh, there's so many good resources out there now that prove the reliability and the historic nature of the scriptures that we have. So the Bible that we read and the Bible that's in your pew, it connects to the earliest manuscripts with precision. And you'll see there's footnotes in your Bible that admit when there's slight discrepancies. And those discrepancies do not change the integrity of the message itself. And in fact, Christianity, Christians are very honest about what those differences are to show you that they're not trying to hide anything. And if you compare the Bible to other historical texts like Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad, um, we have 10,000 times as many manuscripts of the Bible as we do of other books that we don't argue about the historicity of. So that's just a quick way of saying the Bible is reliable. It's historical. And the text you're reading today is extremely close, 99.9% close to the text that Jesus would have read and the early church would have read. Second bad reason to not believe Christianity is the historicity of the person of Jesus himself. Some people would say, well, Jesus wasn't even a real person. He's just like Hercules who was made up by the Greeks. And again, it's just not true. You can read both religious and secular scholars who across the board say Jesus was a real person. He was a real Jewish person who lived during the time that the Bible says he did, and he's a real person who died. Romans killed him on a cross. He's a historical person. A third bad reason is, well, even if Jesus was real and the, the, the scriptures are real, I don't really have a need for Jesus in my life. You know, what, what, would, what would the place of Jesus even be? And that, we're going to get to that a little bit next week in our stories. But for today, I just would offer, well, what do we do about the brokenness in our world? What do we do about the sin that each of us has in our heart? What do we do about the evil that we see in the world? It's in that place that Jesus does come ringing into our life because he is the one in this belief set that actually provides a solution for sin and for brokenness and for evil and for death. So there is a need for him. The fourth and final bad reason, I promise I'm gonna get positive soon, is, well, Christianity is just one of many useful religions. And I just would say that if, if Jesus is just one of many helpful or useful teachers or guides, then why the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus didn't seem to come with a message of one of many. He came with a message of, I'm the one who is laying down my life so that you can live again. And so again, it's not to make light of those doubts, but it's just to say there are reasons why those things that are given are tough to have solid ground. That being said, there is one really good reason to not believe Christianity. And that's the resurrection. If you can't prove the reliability or the historicity or the factualness of the resurrection of Jesus, then the Bible is quick to admit itself, then we are all fools. 
we should all go home and find a better hobby than Christianity. And so the, the resurrection is the one that I will give you in the sense of if you're not going to believe in Christianity, that's the one to point to. Because that is the one earth-shattering, changing event in history. And that's why we're going to spend today looking at it. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Because Christianity crumbles if Jesus did not raise from the dead. Let me give you one more illustration as we ease into our our points this morning. Um, Did you know that um, not that long ago, if you were living in the Midwest where you get really heavy blizzards in the wintertime, a lot of people uh, would tie a rope from their house to their barn so that if they needed to go outside in the wintertime, if a sudden blizzard came, they wouldn't get blown away or get lost in their own backyard. There are stories of people who would go outside their house in the wintertime in the Midwest, and then a blizzard would come out of nowhere, and they would literally get lost in their own backyard and would freeze to death because they couldn't make their way back home. So it became a practice to tie a rope from your house to your barn to make your way back. And so picture today's little sermon as tying a rope. And we're going to venture out into the unknown a little bit. And maybe a blizzard's going to come. um, But we're going to make our way back home on that rope uh, on the hope of the resurrection. So we go into the night of the resurrection. That's where John 20 takes us. It's Easter night. And what we find there is some of the disciples are behind closed, locked doors in some room in Jerusalem. And it says, because they were terrified of the Jews. But one disciple is notably absent, and that's our man Thomas. He is somewhere else, doing something else that we don't know. But we know that he is struggling with Jesus being dead. He doesn't know why this has happened, and he's struggling to understand. And what we see is these two different groups, the disciples who are gathered together in the locked room, and Thomas, who is somewhere else, Jesus comes to both of them at the right time that they needed to be come to. And he speaks to both of them and he gives them both something that both groups needed. And there's one common denominator between the two groups through both the two encounters. And this is our first point. When Jesus comes in to both of them at the separate occasions, the first thing he says to both of them is peace. Peace be with you. Jesus comes to bring peace to those of us who doubt and to those of us who fear. The disciples were fearful. Thomas was doubting. Jesus' antidote to both of them is peace. He appears to them and says, peace be with you. The first evidence that we discover is very similar to the burning hearts that we talked about last week. The first evidence that we see of the resurrection is Jesus coming, promising to bring peace to those who don't have it. The peace of life from God himself is the antidote to both fear and doubt. And so I would say to you that if you have a deep, unshakable peace in your life, that is actually a a deep evidence that you are believing in the resurrection of Jesus. 
that things are going to be okay, that there's a hope for the future, that things will be new one day. You know, Billy Graham says, quote, the world does not give peace for it does not have any peace to give. It fights for peace. It negotiates for peace. It maneuvers for peace. But there is no ultimate peace in the world. But Jesus gives peace to those who put their trust in him. And I would even say a little bit clearer, Jesus gives peace to those who are trying to put their trust in him, even before so. Because you see here, Jesus brings peace to the disciples and to Thomas before they're even really asking for it, before they're even necessarily believing who he is, Jesus gives it to them. So it says the disciples are in fear. They were in fear of the Jews. Certainly they probably were fearful that what happened to Jesus may happen to them next. You know, that maybe they would be the next ones on the cross or the next ones that were persecuted. Or maybe they were fearful that they thought they'd have to return to to the religion or the rituals that they did before. Maybe they'd have to start going back to the synagogue and go through the whole process again of waiting for the Messiah. And maybe that was just fearful for them. Or maybe they were fearful of, of the shame that was now part of their life, that they had put all their hope in this Jesus and then all of a sudden he's dead and now they look like fools. Maybe they're thinking they're going to have to go back to be fishermen again or go back to being a tax collector again. Or going back to being a religious zealot again? Think about the fear that they were feeling because of the unknown. You know, fear leads us to dark places. And you can kind of feel the dark places that these guys were finding themselves in. They were paralyzed into hiding. And then Jesus, notice the doors were locked. And Jesus appears to them. It's the beauty of a resurrected body is locked doors don't mean anything to a resurrected body. Apparently Jesus comes through the locked doors, appears to them and he speaks peace to them. Shalom was the common greeting in Israel. And in some sense, you could just say Jesus was giving a common Jewish greeting. Shalom, peace. So in one sense, this was a very ordinary thing that Jesus said. It'd be kind of like Jesus walking into this room and saying, hello. But if you know anything about Shalom, we live in the city of Salem. You know, shalom, it gets, comes from the same word, peace. That this is actually a, a deeply embedded theological word, not just a greeting like hello for us. We don't really quite have the same kind of word that connotates both a greeting and a presence. But shalom does that. It provides wholeness, fullness, completeness, peace when you walk in. And so he said it not just as a greeting, but also as a type of blessing, as something he was giving to the disciples as he came, comes in. It was a, for English grammar nerds, it was a double entendre, you could say. The disciples were still, though, a little fearful. Even after he says peace, they didn't really have a reaction yet. They they had to be stunned. This guy comes through locked doors and says, peace. Could this really be him? But then Jesus shows him his hands. And he shows him his side. And then it says, they were glad. The evidence of his death revealed new life to them. And it brought them to life too. So that's the disciples. No Thomas. Thomas was not there. 
So these disciples go over to Thomas and they say, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And I loved Donna's uh, divine intervention. The, mm-mm. Do you hear her say that? Mm-mm, no way. I don't believe it because I think that's exactly what he was feeling. Where was Thomas during this time? Who knows? We don't know where he was. Maybe he returned home. Maybe he went camping. Maybe he just got out for a little bit and needed to go clear his mind. Who knows what Thomas was doing? Maybe he was getting into some mischief. Maybe he went to see his twin. said he's a twin. But the disciples go and find Thomas, and they tell him, and he doesn't believe. He says, I have to see it with my own eyes. And I, I, I've said that. <laughs> I've said that myself, too, about a lot of things. I'll believe it when I see it. If you follow any of the sports teams that I follow, I've said that I'll believe they're going to win the championship when I see it with my own eyes because it just hasn't happened yet. Or, you know, when, when we have two girls, obviously, and when we're driving somewhere and we see something out the window that we want to point out, like, oh, there's a horse over there. And they, they turn their heads as fast as they can. And if they don't see it, they get really upset because they missed it. They needed to see it with their own eyes to believe that it was there. I think we all kind of have that in our own hearts as well. Like, I need to see it myself. I don't, I don't want to be the one that missed it, that didn't see it in time. Seven days go by. And on the eighth day, that's when Thomas gets his chance. But imagine that. It's a week. Eight days, Thomas has to sit in that unknown of, am I crazy or are they crazy? Eight days later, and they're back behind closed doors again, locked doors. You see that? The disciples knew that Jesus was raised from the dead by now, but they're still locking their doors. Is that showing that they're having a small faith? I think it's just showing that even though they know Jesus is raised from the dead, they're still being prudent. They're still being wise. I mean, you and I know Jesus raised from the dead, a lot of us, and we still lock our doors at night because we don't want robbers to come in. But they're behind locked doors again. And then Jesus appears to Thomas now. He came just for Thomas. The others had already seen him. The others already believed. The others already were glad. He came just for Thomas. He comes and he gives him peace too. Peace be with you. But what about the evidence, you may say? What is the evidence? Like I said earlier, there's, there's what I think are bad reasons to disbelieve Christianity, but there's one valid reason, and it's the resurrection. How could we possibly believe that this is real? I think all of us have a doubting Thomas in us. So what is the role of doubt or questions in our life? You know, and I, I was reading a book this week that for the most part was not great, but there was one good part in the book that talked about the stages of faith that we go through. And I thought he was on to something with this. He says that each of us go through these four stages of faith if we're committed to trying to believe something. The first stage is simplicity, where you just accept it with eagerness. Yes, I see it. It's a simple faith. And then the second stage is complexity where you begin to see some of the deeper questions you have and you begin to kind of dig deeper into that next level. And 
It, may, it maybe isn't quite as simple as it used to be. It's a little more complex. Like, how does this relate to my job? How does this relate to decisions I make? So on and so forth. The third stage is, I think, the stage that Thomas finds himself in. Perplexity. Where the complex questions don't seem to have the answers. And he doesn't see Jesus anymore. And he, now he's perplexed. And then the fourth stage is when you kind of come all the way back around and are reconciled. And this person calls it harmony. But I think you could call it a lot of different things. Where you have a solid, deep, mature faith. All of us need to get to that place of complexity and then perplexity to really see the true place of faith in our life. Because as, as comfortable as simplicity is, it's not where true faith resides. It's not the place that Jesus wants to keep us in. He wants us to work through the complex questions, even into the perplexity. Remember, he left Thomas there sitting there for seven days in perplexity. And then he comes to him. And as a church, that's why we use this word curiosity more and more is because we want to foster a community where we can be curious together and not be condemned for it. But we can come with questions, come with some of those doubts and, and concerns even and find real answers, working through complexity and perplexity into peace or harmony again. Hebrews chapter six, verse one says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So the Bible urges us to do that. So I'm going to, let me just, this is going to take a few minutes, but let me just give you some evidence. All that being said, there is solid, I would say relentless, real evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I'm going to just read a lot of it for you. So just get ready. This is going to be a little quick and fast. And I brought some visual examples for you. So I don't mean to be a nerd, but there are, these are some big books. This is a, I don't know, 800 page book. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God by a man named N.T. Wright. This is another book. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And these are just giant books that if you want to read about a lot of the evidence of the resurrection, those are two good ones to start with. But then there's this book that I came across this week. It's called When Skeptics Ask, a handbook on Christian evidences. And he talks about how there's 12 resurrection appearances of people that see, hear, and touch Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's the other women. There's Peter. There's two disciples. There's then the 10 disciples. And then there's the 11 disciples with Thomas present. And then there's seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Then there's 500 disciples in the, in, the, in, in the region of Galilee. Then there's 11 disciples in Galilee. And then there's James. And then there's all the apostles in Jerusalem. And then there's Paul himself. That's all from this book here, When Skeptics Ask. I'm going to build a tower for you. I don't know if you're getting the imagery here. We may be blocked by the offering plate. Next, there's a book here uh, called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And there's a, one of the chapters says, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Let me just read this. It says, uh, this man named Gary Habermas has completed the most comprehensive investigation to date on what scholars believe about the resurrection. He collected more than 2,400 of the most critical works on the resurrection written from 1975 to 2003. And in this book, uh, he reports that virtually all scholars from across the ideological spectrum 
from ultra-liberals to Bible-thumping conservatives, agree that the following points concerning Jesus and Christianity are historical facts. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Two, he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, despondent, having lost hope. Four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after this. Five, the disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They're even willing to die for their belief. Seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before. Nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ten, Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. Eleven, James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time, was converted when he believed and he also saw the risen Jesus. Twelve, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Going through this as fast as I can. Here's another one, Josh McDowell, A Ready Defense. Another huge book. Who has time to read these books? He gives five obvious observations. Number one is the testimony of history, which, with which he list a bunch of secular and religious scholars who um, throughout history have, uh, have testified to the idea that the resurrection is credible. Number two, he says that the resurrection was foretold throughout the scriptures. Number three is he says the basis of the whole Christian faith is the resurrection. Number four, he says Christian faith is an intelligent faith, meaning that it's not built just on heart belief, but it's built on your mind mattering also. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number five, he says, if you look at historical criteria by how, by how we gauge other things as being historical or reliable, then the resurrection meets those criteria as well. He then goes through different security precautions that, that people went through in the Bible to make sure that Jesus' body was not stolen or taken. So he talks about how there were six different trials, how he was killed by crucifixion. He's basically saying Romans knew how to kill people. He was not just knocked out. Three, he says there was a solid rock tomb. Fourth, he got a Jewish burial. Five, it was a very large stone. He says it's probably up to two tons. Who can move a two-ton stone overnight? Six, he said there was Roman security there. There was a temple police, a Roman guard, the force of the Roman guard, and a high priest even offered a bribe to make sure people didn't steal the body. And then seven, he said it was even covered with a Roman seal, which was to authenticate that the tomb was sealed itself and closed so that grave robbers would not break in. And so the facts to be reckoned with are there's a broken Roman seal. There's an empty tomb. The large stone was moved. A Roman guard just totally disappears because he's fearful of being punished. There's grave cloths that are there. And then there's the appearances that I mentioned to you earlier. And then he mentions how women saw him first. That's Josh McDowell. Almost to the bottom, maybe. 
Then there's this newer book called Hope in Times of Fear. And Tim Keller wrote this book. And he, he quotes this man named Peter Williams, who uh, wrote on the resurrection. And he says this, the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in towns and in countrysides, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and to groups of women, to individuals and to groups of up to 500, sitting and standing, walking and eating, and always talking. Many are explicitly close-up encounters involving conversation. It's hard to imagine this pattern of appearances in the Gospels in early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. At the very bottom here, I have these two tiny books, finally. We've gone from a thousand to smaller ones. Um, these last two, this one is called Basic Christianity by John Stott. And he summarizes the evidence in four quick things. The body was gone, the grave cloths were undisturbed, the Lord was seen, and the disciples were changed. He quotes in this book um, this man named Sir Edward Clark, who was part of the King's Council. He was a British lawyer of high rank. Uh, who wrote to a pastor. So this is a lawyer writing to a pastor, and he says this. As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged story of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not so nearly compelling, meaning that he's, he's He's found solidity in other cases without nearly as much evidence as what he's found for the resurrection. And he says, inference follows on evidence and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. So to summarize, evidence. Going back to Gary Habermas from earlier, who wrote the long book. There was a man who was a Muslim named Nabil Qureshi, who began a, a journey to understand his own faith, really. And that led him to look at the person of Jesus and see if it really was true about the resurrection. And upon reading Gary Habermas and all of his evidence about the resurrection. Um, he described how influential that was in him converting from Islam to Christianity. And he describes um, this writer, Gary Habermas, as, quote, a mix between Santa Claus and an offensive lineman. Meaning that he, he brought him an immense gift, kind of like Santa Claus does. He brought him a gift by giving him all this evidence. And he's also like an offensive lineman in football that was protecting him from getting sacked by the world, I think you could say. And so the summary quote by Habermas is this, quote, skeptics must provide more than alternative theories to the resurrection. They must provide first century evidence for those theories. And so I, as we kind of conclude here with the evidence part, I think it's worth saying here that evidence alone 
that evidence that I just stacked up there in those thousands of pages, that's not enough to simply believe. And so at the end of some of these books, it often asks the question, it says, so if there's so much evidence for the resurrection, if there's so much evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, then why don't more people believe? And as they summarize in this book, they say, you know, it comes down to it's, do you want to believe it? It's not so much about your mind believing it. It's about your heart grabbing it and saying, all right, what is really holding me back from accepting this? If the evidence is there, what is holding me back? And they they come to the point where they say some people just get to the place where they don't want it to be true because they know how much it would change everything. Many believe that accepting the truth of Christianity, he says, would require them to change their thinking, their friends, their priorities, their lifestyles, their morals, and they're not quite willing to give up control over their lives in order to make those changes. They believe that life would be easier, perhaps more fun without these changes. Perhaps they realize that while Christianity is all about forgiveness, it's also about denying yourself, carrying your cross. Christianity is free, but it can cost you your life, is what he says. And that's the thing, you know, God does not, he doesn't need these books of evidences to, to convince you to believe something. You know, you are free, free to believe, free to, to choose Um, As C.S. Lewis says, he cannot ravish, he can only woo. And so God uses evidence only to woo you to a deeper love and a deeper forgiveness. And so to finish the sermon, let's talk about what these folks received briefly. What did the the Jewish disciples receive and what did Thomas receive? The disciples, after they saw the hands and the side, they received the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit, the gift of life, the gift of God himself, and they're sent out. And then it says, forgive. I'm giving you this evidence so that you know the power of forgiveness, it says. And then Thomas himself, after he's given the the chance to actually touch the wounds, to touch the side, he says, my Lord, my God, This is me. This is for me, he says. I see it now. I believe it. It's personal for me. Faith is not about seeing, but it's about believing in your heart. Thomas got to see. And then Jesus says, but blessed are those who are not going to see. People like you and me. And so I said to our Sunday school class earlier, I said, you know, Thomas got eight days in between, you know, not knowing between Easter and when he got the evidence but for you and I, because we don't see the resurrected Jesus ourselves, you know, we, we, we probably get more like eight decades to work this through, to live in that uncertainty. So if you're waiting for those eight days to come, these are the eight days. These are the times to wrestle with the questions and to see, can you believe without seeing? Because evidence does back it up. And so why do I keep putting all these books here you know, it's kind of ridiculous. They were heavy, actually. They don't look that heavy in this big room. But the reason I put those books there is because verses 30 to 31, did you catch the end of this? John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, these, of his disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning the Gospel of John. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Turn over one page to John 21, verse 25. John says it again. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written about them. Do you see how small these books are in comparison even just to this room? And John is saying, we could fill up the whole world with books about what Jesus has done for us, how he's raised from the dead, how he's changing the world. And yet even this feels like a lifetime of effort to read these 3,000 pages or whatever that's right here. But God has given us sufficient evidence so that we may have life in his name. It's so that we might believe and our life might be changed. Not just that we might know more, but the tangible evidence is for us to believe. So remember that parable at the beginning about uh, the little boy shooting the sun in the lake and it shatters into a thousand pieces. Eventually with water, as he's standing there looking, all those pieces begin to come right back together and they form a solid sun again. When the water stills, it comes back together. And so I hope as this little sermon has gone a little bit longer than usual, as those pieces come back together, that you see the fuller picture that there is tangible evidence. And in fact, more so than for most things. And Jesus is simply asking you to to step out in faith on it. Trust in your heart and believe it. And we're going to sing the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That's, that's an opportunity for our heart to connect to this even more so. And then next week when we come back, we get to see why it all matters. Why does a risen Jesus even matter for us? So let me close us in prayer and then we'll, we'll sing our final hymn. Thanks for being patient through all that. Gracious God, uh, we thank you that you've not left us alone with nothing. And sometimes it feels that way because we can't see you but you've given us so many breadcrumbs that lead to the one thing that really gives us hope and assurance in life and in, and in the age to come, which is that if you are raised from the dead, everything has changed. Give us faith to believe. Help us as a church to be an encouraging community for wherever we are on that journey. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.